Well, good evening. How y'all doing tonight? Great. I am doing good. Except there was a spider crawling along the microphone during practice. And I got a little bit of arachnophobia. So like during the set, I was a little distracted because I'm like, is he going to get me? So, but we're good. We're past it now. So I'm all right. All right. Tonight we are going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3 looking at verses 1 through 6, and we're going to be talking about the principle, the doctrine of submission, but tonight we're going to be looking at it specifically in context of wives towards their husbands. Now, before, the, before we do that or get into that, I just want to address something up front and just get it out of the way. Many of you are aware that I am single. I am unmarried, all right? I have never been married. I was engaged once a long time ago. That's a story for another time. But God had other plans. But for some, that might make it difficult to hear and to receive a teaching like this from me. It might make it difficult for some people. Um, In my years of ministry, I've been in pastoral ministry now for 13 years. I've been in ministry uh, as a servant, as a deacon, uh, for about 22 years now. And and over those years, uh, specifically over the last 13, I have had the opportunity to provide pastoral counseling to married couples. And even in that, some have wondered, how? How can you possibly do that, right? Um, So I want to address that right up front, as we're going to be this week and Sunday talking about some of Peter's instructions to wives and husbands. Um, But the answer, and the reason I have given people when they've questioned me over the years, very humbly, this is my answer, because I have the exact same manual that you have, all right? I have in my possession the exact same set of instructions from the exact same God who breathed them into his authors. On top of that, um, I am personally just very confident of the calling that God has placed on my life to teach his word. And so I can teach his word. I do teach his word, all of it, okay? Um, And so, but in doing that, I am cognizant of the fact that I am single and don't have personal experience with, with marriage and things of that nature. So as I teach through passages like that, I do try to be careful not to interject um, experiential opinion, because I have none, okay, and I'm aware of that. But on the same note, I do feel that at times, my lack of personal experience in marriage allows me to teach and counsel uh, what the Word of God says about it without any temptation to let my personal experiences possibly water it down, possibly to soften it, or alter the standards of marriage, because I don't have any experiences to go, well, it says this, but you know, I've been there, and it didn't. So, anyways, that's my disclaimer, okay? We're good? All right, awesome. (laughs) So, with that being said, I do believe, and uh, really I've observed in my life uh, through through others in their marriages, that that marriage simply um, very often just magnifies the personality that you already have, you know? Um, whether you're kind or unkind, whether you're a leader or whether you're passive, 
whether you're a submissive individual or a defiant individual. It seems in, 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 in a lot of cases I've seen that marriage um, will simply take the personality you have and magnify that, right? And I've, you know, again, I've talked to a lot of people over the years that think, you know, oh, when I get married, everything will change, right? If I just get married, all of this will change. My personality will change. Their personality will change, right? Which is a real dangerous one. You know, if I just marry them, they'll be different. And the disasters that come from some of that type of thinking. But in our modern culture, and we've touched on this in our last couple studies through the end of chapter two, the word submission That word submission, specifically when it's used in context of wives towards their husbands, can be very volatile, right? Um, Especially if you're talking to modern feminists or, you know, um, just uh, ultra-liberal people that, you know, you, you, you bring up this idea of wives submitting to their husbands and you might as well, like, punched them in the face and assaulted them. You know, it is the most volatile thing to bring that up. But Peter, however, um, he brings it up. And he has a few things to say about this very concept in the third chapter of his letter. And so just to kind of go back and remind us of the overall context, Peter has been dealing with this idea of submission um, through uh, really three, some would say four, major examples, uh, major areas of social interaction in our lives. He's been uh, looking at back in chapter two, our submission as Christians in the world when it comes to society at large. The concept of submitting ourselves to the human authorities that are above us, uh, really living as good citizens in in submission to those those authorities, talking about the governments of stuff, even when they're ungodly. Then he went on to talk about our submission in the workplace as an employee or someone that is under the authority of another and really specifically looked at it in context of if you happen to have a really bad boss, right? Somebody that's really difficult to work for. Right after that, he got into the greatest example of submission, how Jesus himself set the example for us through suffering, that he suffered on the cross, died on the cross, was brutalized, was tortured for us, right? And then tonight, like I said, and next week, we're going to be looking at this concept of submission within the family, specifically with the wives and the husbands. And so, and then later on in this letter, he kind of keeps the theme going as he talks about submission within the church community. And we'll deal with those things as we get to them. But these first uh, six verses of chapter three, Peter focuses on the wives. Um, Next week, we'll be focusing on, or next Sunday, we'll be focusing on the husbands. I personally thought it was kind of hilarious because I don't really plan these things out like, oh, I'm going to be in this chapter on this Sunday. I just kind of go. And Sunday happens to be Super Bowl Sunday, and we're going to be talking about wives and, and, or husbands in relation to their wives. So and I'm interested to see how all that comes together. But um, really, these verses, all relationships are, are in view, right? All relationships between spouses. But he especially focuses on relationships of the unequally yoked. Um, unequally yoked simply is a biblical term referring to when a believer, a saved Christian believer, is married to a non-believer, someone who doesn't believe in Jesus, doesn't believe in Christianity, or even believes in, a, in another faith. And so, and the reason I, I, I know that he's talking about that specifically is because in verse one, the word disobey that we're going to get to in a moment, that word disobey doesn't just mean to not do the thing. It specifically means to refuse to be a believer or to reject the Christian message. And so um, that's kind of what he's springboarding off of in this. And so but, but again, context, you know, marriages back in the time of this letter, they were a bit different than they are today in our society. 
Um, back in the times, ancient times, and specifically the times where Peter wrote this letter during the Roman Empire, wives were um, uh, expected to assume the faith of their husband. That's how it worked in those days, right? So if the husband was worshiping uh, whatever Roman god, the wife was expected to worship that same god. That was kind of the culture. And really, it was a, it was a, a major faux pas, if you will. Like, a wife would never, never be an adherent of a religion that was different than her husband's. And so then Christianity comes along, right? And as Christianity was developing there in the first century, it was seen by the prevailing governments, the government of the time. It was seen by many people in society as subversive because what Christianity brought to the reality of relationships was so radical compared to what was common in society. You know, and so wives were finding themselves getting saved while their husbands were still worshiping some Roman god. And it was creating big problems, not just in those relationships, but in the, in the cities, the towns, and in just the culture in general. And so, you know, if you put yourself in the, the shoes of the wives back then, what's, what's a Christian wife to do, right? There's pressure from the state, pressure from the community, pressure from her husband, that I don't care about this, Jesus. You must worship who your husband worships. Was she just to dump him and leave, right? Is that the answer? You know, although some would say that's exactly what you do. (laughs) Peter and Paul the Apostle both say, no, that's not what you do. That's not the answer. And so tonight, um, as we go through what Peter has to say here, we're really going to see three marks, three marks of a caring, compassionate, warm-hearted woman, or you could put it another way, a picture of, of the characteristics of a godly wife. And so what we're gonna see, one, is her actions. We're gonna see, two, her attitude, and three, her admiration. And really, we're gonna see how her actions are to speak louder than words and why that's important. We're gonna see that her attitude, her attitude is to be her most beautiful feature. And then we're gonna see that her admiration is to be more biblical than conventional. And so let's pray, and then we'll start diving through it. Father. We thank you, God, for your word, Lord. We thank you again of how it deals with real life, real practical challenges, God. And Lord, we know that your word is is applicable to, to all people at all times, God. And so, Lord, we pray that you would open our mind and open our heart, that we would hear your word, that we would receive what it is you're encouraging us, what it is you're teaching us through your holy word. I pray, God, that you would speak very clearly, God. If there's any in this room or watching online, Lord, that, that our wives in, in difficult situations, married to difficult husbands, Lord, I pray especially you would encourage them tonight. Lord, although what you have to say here is really an encouragement to all wives, Lord, I just want to pray specifically for those in difficult scenarios. God, that you would speak to their hearts tonight and encourage them, give them hope, Lord, that things would, would be and could be how you want them. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would bless us tonight, speak to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so the first mark is that her actions should speak louder than her words. Look at 1 Peter 3, verse 1. He says, in the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live when they observe your pure, reverent lives. Now, as I said, although the, the things we're going to be looking at really do apply to all wives, he's, he seems to be pointing out a situation where um, uh, the wife might think, 
I think I married the wrong person, right? And of course, that's never happened, right? In any relationship ever. But maybe, maybe I'm, I'm with the wrong person, I should bail. This is uh, dealing with a situation where there's a couple that's together and the wife has gotten saved during the course of their marriage, okay? Um, this is not saying, hey, ladies, go marry that ungodly guy who's just a worldly sinner and, 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 and just, you know, get him, get him saved, right? This, that's not what this is teaching, okay? That's a whole different area of unequally yoked, and the Bible says don't do that. You're just, you're, you're creating massive headaches for yourself. This is a married couple where the wife has gotten saved as the wife, but the husband is not. And to understand, again, the gravity of what Peter is teaching here, I want to look at the cultural context, because in the Greco-Roman culture of the day, women had virtually no rights at all, no rights at all. Um, An unmarried woman who was living at home was living under a Roman law called patria potestas, which basically was referring to the absolute rule of the Roman father over the child. And when I say absolute, what I mean is that under Roman law, a father had the right to even execute his children with no legal repercussions of any kind. That was the world of the day. He literally owned his children. They were, they were, they were really not much more than property. He could do whatever he wanted with them. Well, when the time came for a daughter's marriage... That father would then give that that daughter to another man, and her husband at that point now became the owner of her. She was property, right? That was the Roman culture of the day, and so the uh, the position of being a wife in Peter's time was much, much, much more complicated and difficult than anything we experience today, at least in the Western world. There are still some cultures that, that have this oppressive kind of marriage. But, but again, in those days, um, it was difficult, much more difficult, because you didn't have any rights, right? There were no police to call. There, there was no divorce court per se, even though, ironically, in the Jewish culture, it was only a husband that could divorce the wife, and then Jesus came along and basically was like, nah, you could both divorce each other. I don't want you to, but, right? He kind of elevated the rights of women, um, in, in his talking. And so, but again, in those days, if the husband got saved and converted to Christianity, it was assumed that the wife would just be a Christian, right? It was assumed she would follow suit. But if she decided to follow Jesus without her husband doing so, a whole set of difficult circumstances were introduced. And this is what Peter is devoting these six verses here to dealing with. Now, a couple of the basic ground rules that, that are set up in Scripture um, both here and fleshed out in other parts of the New Testament, is, is really two things that Peter and Paul would say to a believing wife who finds herself married to an unbelieving husband. Um, Peter, or Paul, brings it up in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. He says this, If any woman has an unbelieving husband and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. And so the first ground rule here, really in this overarching concept of submission that Peter is talking about, and really in the context of of marriage, and then in a very even narrower context of of a believing wife finding herself married to an unbelieving husband, um, is to try and stick with it, to stick with it, to to remain in in that marriage. 
Because it says there that the unbelieving husband is sanctified or set apart or made holy by the believing wife. And what that term means is that the presence of the believing wife in that marriage, really um, her, her influence and everything that she would bring to that marriage um, gives God a very unique access and reach to that unbelieving husband. And so he is, he is set apart. He is, he is really set apart to, to, to be really in the prime influence of God in his life. And so it says to the unbelieving wife, look, um, if he's willing to stay with you, <laughs> Then, then stay with him, right? But then the second kind of ground rule dealing with this is what we see here in Peter, submission. He says, in the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Now, I might bring this later again, but I always like to make this point. Please notice own husbands, all right? Wives, you are not called nor required or expected to submit to anybody else's husband but your own. In some traditions, in some churches even today, there's this, this really messed up sense of male superiority and authority in that, and they think all women, regardless of who you're married to, must, must listen to the commands of all the men, and, and that's just ridiculous. That is not biblical. Okay, so your own husbands. Just make note of that. But he says in the same way as he opens up this chapter, and so same way as what? Well, in the same way we just looked at in chapter two, the same way that we as citizens submit to our governments, even the ungodly ones when it's difficult, the same way that we as employees submit to our employers, even when they're bad bosses, the same way that Jesus, our example, submitted to the suffering of the cross for our benefit. In the same way, wives submit to your husbands, even the unsaved ones. Pretty difficult thing to process for some people. But he gives us a very important reason why. That you might win them to Christ. Which is the same exact reason in all the previous examples, right? Submit to the government that although they're slandering you, they might just glorify God in the end of all things. Submit to your, 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 your in the context of the times, submit to your master as a slave, but in our day, Serve your bosses and be a good worker and all that so that your example might lead them to Christ. Obviously, Jesus submitting to the suffering of the cross led to our salvation, right? So it's in that same way. Again, off of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, where he said, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles. Why? Because they're watching. They're watching the Christians. They're, they're paying attention to how they behave. They're paying attention to how they act. They're paying attention to what they say, how they, how, they, how they do what they do in every area of life, including marriages. It's been said um, over the years, and I don't know current statistics, but at one point the statistic on divorce used to say that, that the number of Christian couples that are divorced is equal to or exceeds the percentage of non-Christian couples who get divorced. And it was just like, if that's true, that's a heartbreaking statistic because marriage is supposed to be a witness to the world of the relationship God wants to have with us, right? And, 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 and I'm not saying that there's not difficult circumstances. I'm not saying that there's situations that, that, that might lead to that and require that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying it's just unfortunate because the very witness of marriage is supposed to you know, communicate that, that God commits to you now and forever, 
And then the unfortunate side effect of a divorce is until whenever, right? And so they're watching. Now that word there for submit, where he says, wives, submit to your husbands, it's that same word used in submitting to the government, the same word used in submitting to our employers. It's the Greek word, hypotasso. And in this context, it means to voluntarily cooperate or to voluntarily place oneself under the authority of another. And in this context, to, to, to yield is, is another way to put it. You know, the idea of yielding is I could force my way, I could demand my way, but I'm going to yield to the authority of my husband. It's the idea of like merging onto the freeway, right? Some of you don't understand yielding when it comes to merging on the freeway, let's be honest. Let's just be real here, right? But the idea is as you're merging onto the freeway and traffic's coming, you're supposed to yield to the traffic that's already going full speed, right? So you don't cause an accident. And it's that concept with wives submitting to the husbands is you yield to, to uh, the authority that God has given them in that context. And so the idea is following his lead, yielding to his authority, letting him lead. Submission here in this word, this context, it doesn't imply any kind of moral or intellectual or spiritual inferiority, it doesn't imply that at all. It isn't implying that, oh, wives, you have to submit to the husbands because, because he's smarter than you. It's not implying that at all. It's not saying, you know, because, well, you know, he's, he's morally correct. It's not implying any of that. Just like in our previous examples, it doesn't imply that. You know, just because a citizen submits to the government leader doesn't then imply that that government leader is morally superior to the citizen. Not at all. In fact, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 says this, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. There is an equity that God brought to the world that before Christ, men and women have an equal standing before Jesus. They are equally as important, equally as special. And this was important in the society of the day because women were definitely looked at as less than men, less important, in, in, in less in so many different ways. And so Jesus comes along and elevates women and men together and says, look, before God, you're both his creation. He loves you both. You're both important to him. However, there is order in God's design for things. And we see that in scripture. There is order in creation, right? Things have to be in a particular order to work a certain way, and that goes all the way down to atoms and molecules and all this stuff. There's order in church leadership that God talks about in the Bible. This is how I want my, my, my church that represents me to the world to operate. And there's order within the family. And you can get this in Ephesians chapter five. That's a scripture that's, that's quoted often in weddings, right? As it gives instructions to both the wives and the husbands. But this order that God has in things is not meant to imply superiority of the male over the female, not at all. It's about functionality within the relationship operating the way God wants it to operate. And so thus, wives, submit to your own husbands or yield to your own husbands. Now the issue here, obviously, is that Peter is telling believing wives to submit even to non-believing husbands, to yield to their leadership in the marriage even though they're not saved. And you might read that and you go, that's gotta be wrong, right? I mean, 
You know, if ever there was a mistake in the Bible, that's got to be it. But again, just like we looked at when we talked about submitting to the authorities, you know, is there ever a time when a Christian wife can or should not submit, defy or not obey the leadership of her husband in the marriage context? I believe yes, and it's the same context as, as is there ever a time where we don't submit to the governments above us? Right? The idea is this, is you submit or yield until submitting to your husband makes you not submit to heavenly authority. You obey until your obedience to your husband makes you disobey God. And at that point, it's like, I'm sorry, husband, I, I can't submit to that. Now, in today's world, I believe it also <laughs> means that if he's physically abusing you, verbally abusing you, or otherwise abusing you, it doesn't mean that you're simply just called to take it and say nothing and do nothing. Not at all. It doesn't mean that, that you have to always agree with him in every single thing without ever presenting a different view. That's not what it means. This text really isn't meant to, to, to address every possible situation that could come up in marriages. It's not meant to address every possible application of the teaching or even every possible exception to the teaching. That work is really left to the, to the pastors and the elders in a, in a counseling ministry dealing with people in, 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 a, in, in a one, not one-on-one, -on -one, couples one-on-two situation, right? But the general principle is to be applied by wives and it's to be applied for the sake of the gospel. Really, it's in the context of Christians being peacemakers, Christians being reconcilers, and so wives in the context of their husbands, and even those that in the day that got this letter that found themselves converting to Christianity while they were married to somebody, but the husband has not yet converted. It's follow that example of Jesus. Follow that example of, of, of suffering in that sense. His example of redemption and restoration where and when we can. That's the concept here. John Piper said this, the husband does not replace Christ as the woman's supreme authority. She must never follow her husband's leadership into sin. But even where a Christian wife may have to stand with Christ against the sinful will of her husband, she could even in that still have a spirit of submission. She can show by her attitude and behavior that she does not like resisting his will and that she longs for him to forsake his sin and lead in righteousness so that her disposition to honor him as head of the family can again produce harmony. I think that was well written. But again, look at verse one. Peter said, even if some disobey the word, that they may be won over without a word. So yield to their leadership, yield to their headship in the family, even if some disobey the word. As I pointed out earlier, Disobey the word. The word there is God's word, right? It's a Greek word that literally means God's word, the message of Christianity, so that they may be won over by her word. The word there, the word is referring to the wife's words, right? And it says that he may be won over without a word. What is it talking about? It doesn't mean that the wife is to never have anything to say in terms of her testimony, in terms of the gospel, I believe what Peter had in mind as he was writing this to, to wives in the church, 
and maybe specifically wives that had non-believing husbands, is what he's referring to is maybe that wife who has already repeatedly shared the gospel with her non-believing husband, has shared it, has, has you know, programmed his car stereo to be on K-Wave, to, to you know, blast the Spotify worship playlist you know, when he gets home from work. <laughs> all, all the different creative means and methods to get right in, and, and, and maybe he's just tuned out at that point, Right? And we do that, like when we hear stuff over and over that we really don't want to listen to, eventually we just tune it out, right? It just becomes background noise in our lives. And so he's not listening to her anymore. He's not hearing it anymore. And really, I believe what Peter is getting at personally is, is that time where, where, where the time has come that, that it, he requires more than just words. He requires more than just words. He needs to see that life that life that is exampling Christ to him. Um, and, and really that idea, you know, of just badgering uh, your husband, um, arguing with him, yelling at him, ultimately is not going to be helpful. It's not going to accomplish what you're hoping it would accomplish. Now, if, <clears throat> excuse me, if you know church history at all, you've heard of Augustine, one of the early church fathers. He was the third bishop at the church in, in Northern Africa. But there's a, a story in one of his writings where he talks about his mother, Monica. His mother, Monica, was a believer in Jesus Christ. However, his father, Patricius, was an unbeliever, right? And so in, in this uh, book he wrote, or this letter, I'm not sure what it was, <laughs> I, I forget, but he writes about the tension that he experienced in the home uh, throughout his life. And in one of his writings, he, he writes this almost as if it's a prayer to God, and he, he writes what happened in his home, and he said this, Speaking of his mom, she served her husband as her master. And that doesn't mean in some weird, twisted, like, like you know, abusive, slave-driving master type of thing. She just served him uh, with, the, with the honor that he was due as the husband in the household. And it says she did all she could to win him for you, speaking of Jesus. Speaking to him of you by her conduct, by which you made her so beautiful. Finally, when her husband was at the end of his earthly span, she gained him for you. He was converted by her lifestyle. He was converted by her actions. Really the silent preaching of a lovely wife, and that's the first mark that I believe Peter points out here, is that the, that godly wife, regardless of the circumstance she finds her in, um, really should be a woman whose actions really do speak louder than her words. And then we get to Mark 2. The second mark of a caring, compassionate, warm-hearted, godly wife is that her attitude should be her most beautiful feature. Look at verse 3. Don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry or fine clothes, but rather what is inside the heart. The imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Now, I would like to point out and please understand that this is not some legalistic ban on fashion. This isn't some legalistic ban on style, right? It's not trying to teach that, you know, dressing night and, and dressing nice and ladies putting on makeup and all that. It's not saying that that is sinful. That's not what it's getting at here. You know, I think everyone uh, uh, appreciates beauty to one degree or another. You know, when it comes to the, the, the beauty industry, it's a $20 billion a year industry now. But outward beauty is not a bad thing. You know, God created it. 
We could admire beauty. We could see something or someone and go, wow, they're beautiful. There's nothing wrong with, with, with taking care of yourself, doing things to, to look better on, better on the outside. And, and in many cases, it's directly a good thing, right? You have concepts of, you know, be presentable when you go to the job interview. You have concepts of, of dressing for the occasion, right? If you go into a formal occasion, you don't show up in your ratty t-shirt and shorts, right? You know, that idea of taking care of the outsider parents. But, um, and really, the, the idea of taking care of ourselves on the outside, it's not only a modern concept. It's, it's been almost every culture going all the way back. Archaeological digs from Rome show us that 2,000 years ago, the women of Rome really liked to dye their hair really radical and bold colors. In the last 20 years, our culture's kind of caught back up to that, right? With the, with the purples and the reds and the blues, and I love it. I think that stuff looks great, you know? But then they also found that in ancient Rome that one of the big popular things for the women were to wear wigs. And what color of wig do you think was most popular? Blonde. Yeah, right? Kind of weird. And wigs weren't just found in the worldly dig sites. Wigs were commonly found in the Christian catacombs where the Christian women were buried. So this idea of beauty and fashion, it's, it's been a part of every culture to one degree or another. You know, even in the Bible, you have places that, 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 that highlight this, right? You know, in, in Genesis, you have when, when uh, Rebecca showed up. Or was it Rebecca? Yeah, to Isaac. Isaac, Rebecca? Yeah, am I, am I saying the names right? Okay. So, you know, Isaac, the servant, goes out to get his wife, and he brings her back, and Isaiah, uh, Isaac sees her, and I'm going to paraphrase, wow, <laughs> and it describes that she was beautiful, she was pleasant to his eyes, and all this stuff, right? In Song of Solomon, you have the bride being complimented for the, the ornaments on her cheeks, the chains of gold around her neck, the beautiful sandals she wore, and those weren't allegories. There are some other allegories that, that's adult reading, but that stuff was just referring to actual, you know, um, um, accessorizing that she had. But when it says here in verse 3, don't let your beauty consist of outward things, if you look in other translations, especially uh, specifically in the New King James Version, it says don't let your adornment be merely outward. The way it reads here in the CSB seems to indicate that don't at all ever in any way, shape, or form, but that's not what the, the original language really supports. The, the idea is this is okay, but don't let it be the only expression of beauty in your life. You know, some of you have heard this, uh, this quote before from J. Vernon McGee, who's talking about uh, adorning and dressing and, and, and taking care of the outsides once, and, and he said this, you know, when it comes to dressing up or makeup or just making yourself look good, if the barn needs painting then paint it, right? Now, he might get canceled today if he said that, but, you know, back in his time, um, nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with painting the barn. Just don't be obsessed with it, right? Because when he says elaborate hairstyles, wearing gold jewelry or fine clothes, that, that word fine clothes indicates an obsessive compulsive search that you have to have the, the best and the, and the latest name brand and the most expensive stuff. And so... Nothing wrong with taking care of the outside. Just don't be obsessed with it. But to use J. Vernon McGee's concept, if the barn needs painting, paint it. But then make sure you go inside and furnish it with holiness and character. Because it is very, very possible to be absolutely beautiful on the outside, but downright yikes on the inside. 
right? Now he says, don't let your beauty consist, and I believe it's talking about merely of outward things, but rather what is inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now that word imperishable means incorruptible. It's literally the concept of not being subject to being broken down. It's the concept of eternal or forever. The imperishable, the the forever qualities of a gentle and quiet spirit, incorruptible. I think that's in contrast to the outward beauty because outward beauty is corruptible, isn't it? It does break down, doesn't it? Especially as we get older and the our skin changes and our hair changes and, you know, it's like it used to be, oh, just a, a little bit of makeup and then it's more makeup and then it's more and then, and then pretty soon it's like, who are you, right? You know, you're just completely different. You know, and then your body changes and so the clothes, right? It's just, it's just outward beauty is corruptible. He says, don't focus on the outward, but rather what is inside the heart, That phrase, what is inside the heart, he's talking about the real you. The real you. Other translations say rather the hidden person of the heart. Again, that concept of the real you. You know, our reputation, our reputation is is what other people perceive us to be. But our character is the real us. That's who we are on the inside. That's what's inside our heart. That's the hidden person of the heart. That's the person that, that who we are when nobody's looking. How we behave when nobody's looking. How we behave when we're on our own. When there's no one around to impress. But rather, rather focus on that. I think Peter is simply asking this question. It's a very real question for me anyways. What if we spend as much time on the hidden person of the heart as we do on the outside person in the mirror. How would our lives change? How different would our lives be? All of us today got up, showered, maybe some of us shower at night, but it's a part of our daily routine. For me, I shaved what little facial hair God's blessed me to be able to grow. We spent time on our hair, right? Tried on outfits. Some of you maybe tried on two, three outfits, right? This doesn't look right. I'm not feeling it. Then we checked the mirror, grabbed our keys, checked the mirror one more time, got to the front door, maybe checked the mirror a third time. Okay, I look good. I'm ready. I'm put together. And you left the house or you did your work, whatever. But some of us spend more time than others on all of this. Very few of us, I think, spend no time on any of this, but if we counted up all the time we spent getting our outside ready, doing our hair, brushing our teeth, all that, if we counted up all of that time, would you say you spent the same amount of time on the inward person of the heart each day? Some of us would be like, absolutely, praise God. Some of us would say, I spent way more on the inward heart. Awesome, praise God, you know? Some of us, we might be like, oh, Well, sure, you painted the house, but did you furnish the house with character? And what do those furnishings look like? Well, he tells us here, I believe in speaking of the wives, he mentions two things, gentleness and quietness, a gentle spirit, a quiet spirit. That word gentle is the word meek, means power under control. 
right? We often uh, use the illustration of like a, a powerful horse, right? Big horse, and I mean, just think of the power and the speed and the strength that thing has, right? It could just, it could kick you one time and kill you, but you put this little bit and bridle in its mouth and everything, and you can just tell that thing where to go and have it completely under control. That's the idea of meekness. And then when he uses the spirit there, that word specifically refers to a person's emotional disposition or the seat of their emotional faculties. So when he says gentle spirit, what he's referring to is someone whose emotional disposition is under God's control. This involves how you speak. This involves how you respond. This involves how you react, right? Very simple question, wives. Do you, do you encourage your husband in your submission and service to them or do you tear them down? Do you criticize and complain and just insult them at every single mistake they make? And then he says quiet spirit. That word quiet means tranquil or undisturbed. This refers to someone whose emotional disposition is untroubled or free from disturbance. Or in the definition of the word, it says especially free from noise and uproar, which I just found that interesting. Picture, you know, if you've ever seen those glassy lakes up in the mountains, right, not a ripple on the lake. Step out on the porch and just quietness and just wonderful tranquility, right? That's the idea here. The idea here is that you're not constantly mad, constantly arguing, constantly yelling, constantly criticizing, cold-shouldering, death-staring, stomping, sighing, whatever it may be. It means that even though that you know there's bad stuff going on in the world around you and there could be bad stuff happening in the home in that moment, you have a tranquility of heart. There's a peace that surpasses all understanding. It's like, okay, I'm not going to blow up or, or act outrageously. This woman that Peter is talking about here, her life is furnished. The inward person of the heart is, is characterized by these imperishable, incorruptible qualities. These things, it tells us there, are, are, are the most beautiful it says, of great worth in God's sight. And so we've had the first mark. Her actions speak louder than words. At the second mark, that her attitude is her most beautiful feature. And the third one is that her admiration is more biblical than conventional. What I mean by that is that when she looks for role models and examples, she looks to the Bible, not pop culture. All right? Look at verse 5. For in the past, he says, the holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, the way he just talked about in verses three and four, submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You have become her children when you do what is good and do not fear any intimidation. So Peter, as he's writing this letter, says that he, he looked into the past to find an example that he wanted to use and encourage his readers with. And this was a very common thing, especially in the Jewish culture. Young Jewish women would be encouraged to go look to the heroines of their faith and looking for good role models and biblical examples. And they might look to people like Ruth, right? In Ruth 3.11, it says, since all the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Wow, Ruth is a great example. Or in Proverbs 31, you have the Proverbs 31 woman, right? Verse 10, it says, who can find a wife of noble character? She is far more precious than jewels. And then it goes on for 22 verses to explain this wonderfully noble, godly woman. 
I think the encouragement is simply this. You know, Christian women today, Christian wives today, those that are going to be wives someday, those that, 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 just like those in Peter's audience, you should look back. And your admiration or the people you look at to admire, to learn from, to, to, to follow their example should be more biblical than contemporary. I'm not saying there's not any examples in, in contemporary world that you might be able to, to learn something from, but, but primarily it should be biblical. You know, instead of Beyonce, instead of Kim Kardashian, instead of Billie Eilish, instead of Charlie D'Amelio, you should be looking to Ruth, Esther, Naomi, Hannah, or as Peter does here, Sarah. And when Peter went looking for a woman who, whose life modeled you know, good works, a gentle spirit, a quiet spirit, he chose Sarah. When he wanted to put forth someone who exampled these things, it was Sarah he picked. And, and I believe this really is a concept that applies to everybody, not just wives, you know, because in all of life, we're to look to scripture for our cues for living, right? We're to, we're to turn to the Bible and the biblical examples and obviously the greatest example of Jesus for how to live and who to be and how to treat each other. That's how we learn to be Christians. That's how we be Christians as we follow God's word, right? The Bible is our roadmap. It's our guideline. It's, it's our blueprint. It's our manual for, for living. It's the instruction book. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God, or I would include here the women of God as well, may be complete equipped for every good work. You know, there's other books out there that will give you information, great information, some may even give you inspiration, but only the Bible, only the Word of God will provide transformation. It is the only book that will change your life. It changes the way we think. It changes the way we live. It changes our behavior. And so it, it, it's, it's key to, to ladies. Look to the biblical examples when you say, who are the godly women and how did they live and how did they treat their husbands? Now, I do want to point out something here that, that is a, a point of difficulty for a lot of women that read this. It says, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, she called him Lord. And some read that and they go, Ugh. what? Short circuit. What is he saying? Well, that word for Lord there is a Greek word, kyrios. It's a word that is used as a title of respect for someone in a position of greater authority. It's used 713 times in the New Testament. 713 times. One time, it refers to God. 54 times, it's translated as master. 14 other times, it's used as sir, like good sir, right? A, a, a title of respect. It's used as owner nine different times. The idea of this word is that I respect you, I honor you, I submit to you, I yield to you. And although I may not always agree with you, you are the head, you are the leader in this, and so I will follow your lead and I will respond to your decision making. Now of all the examples Peter could have chosen, it's, it's interesting that he chose Sarah and Abraham because you go to the Old Testament, they, their marriage wasn't perfect, right? 
You know, there was, there was a lot of interesting stories in their marriage. You know, it's, it's, and Sarah followed her husband in some pretty boneheaded decisions. You know, on a number of occasions. Honey, there's a famine in the land. God isn't taking care of us, so, so we're going we're gonna to go to Egypt. Okay, Lord. Honey, now that we're in Egypt, you're so beautiful. The, the leaders of the land, the Pharaoh, he's going to come and kill me and steal you and take you as one of his wives. So, so honey, this is what I want you to do. We're going to lie. We're going to tell them that you're my sister so that when they come to take you, they won't kill me. Okay, Lord. What kind of husband would do that? I'm going to let them take you as long as they don't kill me. Right? What kind of husband would... You know, the kind of husband that would do this in Sarah's life was the one God gave her. And what was she called to do in all those boneheaded decisions? (laughs) Okay. I'm going to yield to your leadership. I'm going to follow you. You read through her story, and yeah, she had a gentle and quiet spirit. That doesn't mean she never spoke up, right? There was plenty of times where she's like, hey, what's up? I don't understand. But at the end of the day, she said, I will yield to your leadership, and she followed his leadership. She responded as much as she could in both good times and bad. Now, the bottom line here is I think these verses are are calling for a spiritual makeover, if you will. They're calling... uh, they're calling you women very directly in an in, in associated way, all of us. But it's a call to focus what's on inside the heart more than what's outside. Adorn yourself with gentleness, not just jewelry and makeup. Let your, 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 your bling be goodness, right? Not gold. Let your tranquil spirit just change your home and change your relationship really from the inside out. Why? Well, it's for the sake of the gospel. If you have an unbelieving husband, it's for the sake of his salvation. But really above that, it's because someone else is watching you, not just your husband, not just the world and your coworkers, not just your neighbors, not just your friends. But again, look back to verse four. When you adorn yourself with gentleness and that quiet spirit, when you take care of the inside. Doesn't mean ignore the outside, but when you focus on the inside, it says this is of great worth, great value. That word means extremely precious in God's sight because he's looking, he's watching. So how do I look, God? Well, outwardly, you're super cute, but inwardly, yikes. You've been neglecting or outright disobeying when it comes to the the character that God wants for you to to pray for and to develop in your life. I think a spiritual makeover might be necessary. And the reason why is because God is watching. God has his eyes on your life. And I think as we live under that awareness that God is always watching. Yeah, the world is watching, but God is watching. If we live under that awareness and we respond in obedience... I believe that precious thing that God looks and goes, ah, that's awesome. Blessings flow into our lives. Blessings flow into your marriage. Blessings flow into into your relationship with your spouse. 
And it may be hard, it may be difficult, but we follow a suffering Savior and we walk in his footsteps. And you can know that even in all of the difficulty and the stuff, that as you're walking in his footsteps, you can trust God and his promises are true and his word will come through and he is taking care of you. So keep praying for your husband. Keep praying for your marriage. Don't give up. But don't be the catalyst of the negativity. Be who God wants you to be. Surround yourself with people to encourage you to be who God wants you to be. And yield to your husband's leadership, and I guarantee you as you do so, God is working in his heart, and God is going to do a work in your heart as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, for your word. Lord, again, just how you, you touch on the reality of our daily lives, God. Because you care about our daily lives. You care about the details we deal with. Lord, this word here is not telling all women to submit to all, all men. That is ridiculous, God. That is not what you're teaching here. But your word is teaching, Lord, that in the marriage concept, in the marriage relationship, God, especially when a wife might come to know you as her Lord and Savior before her husband does. That, Lord, those characteristics of a godly wife that you teach us here, Lord, this isn't an, an exhaustive list, but it is a, a place to look at and say, God, I want these characteristics in my life. I want to be able to yield to my husband's leadership. And, Lord, I want to pray right now for those ladies that are specifically in the situation where they have an unbelieving husband. And it is difficult and it is hard, Lord, and I know they spend just hours in prayer and times thinking it's never going change to and change, and they feel hopeless. Lord, I pray, God, that you would just minister to them right now. That, God, they would know as they live in obedience to you, Lord, that, God, you then work on our behalf to do the, the things that, that you want to do in our lives and our relationships. And so, Lord, I just pray, God, for all the wives, Lord, that as they are full of your Holy Spirit. They would be who you've called them to be and created them to be as a wife. To be that servant and that helper, that helpmate, God. Not because they're inferior in any way, but simply because, God, that is the order that you created. And so, God, help in the difficulties. Bless in the struggles, Lord. And help the wives in your church to shine forth the glory of who you are. That as you look upon their lives, God, and as they are following you obediently, that you would just be so pleased as you gaze upon their lives, Lord. God, we thank you. We love you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's worship.